This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. And we're going to talk about The Cosmic Puppets by Philip K. Dick, uh, first published in 1957, and then not published again until 83, uh, in in English, anyways. Um, do you think there's a good reason for that? <laughs> well, what did you guys think of this book? It's very, very early, Philip K. Dick. That's what everybody says about it, but I'm not sure that that's the explanation. I, I think it's not that's, that early. Is, isn't it? I mean, he doesn't have too much earlier before this, as far as novels. Yeah, he's got, he's got like three novels before this, but he had written like a hundred short stories almost uh, prior to this one. Prior to this. Okay, let's call uh, this minor dick. Yeah, I thought I read this was like one of his very first. Like, wasn't it originally written in 53? No, no. So, the one of the PDFs I sent you guys was a, a publication called A Glass of Dark. Oh no, uh, not A Glass of Darkness. Oh yes, Through uh, a Glass Darkly. Uh, I think. Uh, no, it is A Glass of Darkness. Yeah. It, so the the title refers to uh, Through a Glass Darkly. Right now, face to face, it's the biblical line. Uh huh. Which actually makes a lot more sense for the story title of this novel. It's the same novel. Um, and he, he didn't write that way earlier. It's just that, um, this is the time when Philip K. Dick is trying to turn into a novelist. So he had had a couple of books before this, uh, novels. Um, but, uh, they wanted him to start making, I guess, he wanted to start making novels. Mm-hmm. Novels are becoming more popular. Uh, by this time, um, you can't really make as much money as a short story writer. Not that you could make that much, but you could almost make a living. Between 52 and and 55, there was just like millions of science fiction magazines. And they by 55, they, they started disappearing. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, that's why he's going into novels. But he had written like 100 stories before, like in that the first couple of years, just. See, I have a, I found a few different sources. Um, but one of them says that this it was written before um, Solar Lottery, and it was received by the Scott Meredith Agency in 1953. So they're saying it's probably the first his first attempt at a novel, even though it wasn't published earlier. Hmm. Well, let's see what Wikipedia it, says. Uh, Wikipedia, Wikipedia says it was published in 57. Doesn't mention. When it was actually written, but it says it's a revision from Last of Darkness, published in 1956, of science fiction, the one that you showed us. Um, yeah, it's not that much different. He's he's he he puts a little intro uh, scene at the beginning, and then the text pretty much stays the same. Yeah, did you guys read both versions or just the newer I, one? I didn't read through the all of the Glass of Darkness. No, no I didn't I, get time either. I'd love to read that I. though. It's, it seems pretty much the same. Uh, th- that scene at the beginning is missing, um, where the kids are playing uh, in front of uh, Peter's house. Right. Uh-huh. With the dolls. I think it's yeah. just switched, though, right? It's like in the second scene yeah. now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the text pretty much is exactly the same as far as I can see. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I didn't, I didn't think it would make a ton of sense to do that. I, I, I would expect there's a little bit of expansion, but perhaps not. It, it's, it's shorter. A novel in both. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, it's a little bit shorter, like 700 words shorter. Interesting. Yeah. I think he, I think he just refined the language or made the language more simple, but maybe, um, yeah, it's just like a sort of a rewrite. Well, the other thing is it was published as uh, half of an ace double, and the, there's a certain page count they hit for those, right? Uh-huh. So it's possible that the, those were edits uh, not of his, but of um, of the publisher Ace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see, what was the other half? Oh, Sargasso is Space by Andre Norton writing as Andrew North. Interesting, interesting okay. pairing there. I think I've read Sargasso is Space. Let me, let's see, uh, that's the one. Somebody was trying to sell that book. The double uh, on eBay for twelve hundred dollars. I was like, "What?" <laughs> they sell for like three bucks or five bucks. They they were twelve hundred. Yeah, ridiculous. yeah, that's, like, yeah, that's crazy. People are just well, like, oh, "I'll give it a shot." There'll be some yeah. sucker out there. Or I haven't done any research. Philip Kiddick is hot. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, uh, okay. Not talking about the 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 print history. Uh. Everybody's making excuses for this book. Is it maybe it's a lot smarter than uh than we are. That's my my guess. I got that why. feeling too. <laughs> I, I I have a guess that the reason I don't like it is cuz it's it's pitching too high. Mm-hmm. Paul, do you it, get it, that it, feeling? It, it, it is it is it, Dick is being very ambitious with with mixing in all the uh Persian mythology and and I I I hadn't I, I hadn't read this before. If I had read this before I really started picking up mythology, I would have been completely lost. But luckily, luckily since since when I first possibly have read this back in when I started reading Dick, I've read a lot about about Middle Eastern mythology, so I picked up the references right away. But yeah, Dick Dick is Dick decided. I can't imagine in the fifties that most of his readers would have any clue about Orzaman or Araman or Aramadi or any of that, they would they would go like, huh, who, what? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was doing when I first and, read it. <laughs> in the days before Google, yeah, I think I could, I could see how a lot of readers would go off. Go if you look at the publication history outside of uh, English, it seems to have done pretty well in Europe. You know, every every country in Europe seems to have it, its own edition, Italian <laughs> and French, and uh, you know uh, all. <laughs> five or six other uh, European languages. And I, I I don't know if that's because, you know, they're just a little bit closer to, uh, to Iran, uh, Persia. And, you a know, little more cosmopolitan. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but on the other hand, I mean, this is set in Virginia. I, I looked it up. There, there <laughs> is no town uh, Millgate, obviously, but uh, the, the road marks as he's traveling, to through Virginia now he's leaving uh, this county he's entering Carroll County and then they see uh, Beamer's Knob it's a real mountain right uh-huh. it's not a like significant mountain or anything but you know it's there um it's like okay it's set in sort of rural Virginia uh why <laughs> why, why Virginia and not the Midwest not that's yeah. for the West like he normally does like Colorado Utah where he throws a lot of the novels some a lot of, of California a lot of Colorado yeah lots of the novels we've already talked about in the last few months why Virginia what makes this a Virginia novel 
I don't see anything that makes us a religion. Now, once we get inside of that valley, it could be anywhere. It could be mm-hmm. Colorado, Utah, or California mm-hmm. for all that it matters for us, the culture. I think he just picked... I mean, do we know enough about Dick's uh, personal history to know why he might actually have chosen Virginia? He's not really an East Coast guy. Uh, well, not that Virginia's on the coast, but uh, as far as I know, you know, that was not one of his stomping uh, grounds. Oh, 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 well, he did live in Washington, D.C. as a kid for a while. Okay. Because, uh, his, yeah, his, uh, his mother raised him in D.C. for a while. So maybe that's, and then, but then they moved to California in 1938. So he had lived in, DC for a bit as a kid, which kind of dovetails with the whole okay of the um, nostalgia of the antagonist. Well, yeah, nostalgia and, and, and the nature of the antagonist being in the body uh-huh. of a child. So the theme of of you know the town becoming changed is you know it is one of a huge you know recurring ideas that that he, you know I don't know if you guys got a chance to read this story called The Commuter. Mm-hmm. I really love that story. Uh, unfortunately, it's not public domain. Um, did you catch the ending, Marissa? Uh, can you remind me? Yeah, right. Okay, so uh, this is a very interesting story. Basically, there's a a commuter who's traveling between two points. I think it's in California um, on the train, and he's he says, um, "You know, give me a ticket." And then some weird guy runs up to the ticket booth and says, "Okay, I need a." ticket to this town and the ticket booth operators like dude that town doesn't exist and so our protagonist uh, it happens to work for the the train company or whatever and he starts investigating for whatever reason um where this town is and he finds out that a long time ago they were planning on building a town between these other two towns and blah 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 um, he goes down there and steps off the train in, in, uh, at sort of a uh, halfway mark and sees sort of a gray mist, walks into it, and he discovers there's a, a town that's sort of half there. Um, when he, he walks around this town, he, you know, he finds that it's got, you know, all the sorts of things that a regular town has, including like chain restaurants and such. And when he leaves the town, he returns home. And he he's found that he sort of collapsed the you know the wave front or whatever you want to call it, uh-huh. and everything's different. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the story, um, the couch he walks into the couch is different, and he has a baby. I didn't notice the couch like, is different as well. That's funny. The couch yeah. is like everything's slightly different, uh-huh. and the couch is different. The baby he's got a baby. Like everybody knows the baby because I mean he's like. Wait a second, I don't remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because before yeah. that, he was, like, just dating the girl and thinking about... Yeah, they... They were threatening they, to leave they, each other and... That's right. Yeah. They didn't even have... They weren't even living together. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of like, if you're, if the reader's not paying really close attention, um, they won't notice the tiny details that are leading up to the fact that he's, he's actually not in the same world uh-huh. as when he originally started. And it's a, it's a, it's at the end of this novel, I, I think I, I became obsessed with one little detail and I started combing the book over and over and over again, trying to find any more. Oh, yeah. Which, and I don't think that it's actually, 
like that, but I want to give it to you. So do you guys remember in the park, um, there's a cannon, right? Right. Uh-huh. And there's a flagpole. Uh-huh. And what's the flag on the flagpole? Oh, I didn't notice. It's not the Stars and Stripes. It's, it's Confederate. It's the Stars and Bars. Yeah. And I was thinking, what is is this now like Civil War, you know, so, Southern w- winning? But see, the problem with that is, you know, Virginia is sort of on the border between. Yeah. yeah so a lot, of it, the, a lot of the South, you will see the Stars and Bars being blown. Yeah. That's not a, that's I, not I mean, political. It's a Civil War park or something. Right. So it could uh, very well. Aren't they arguing over that at one point? Do I remember that right? Yes, they, they, they argue when they're trying to remake the park. They argue about some of the details, and they talk about, "Oh, we have to get this right, because otherwise it won't work." And right. I wonder if that change in detail me suggests that, well, for Ted, that's not necessarily true. He could have permanently changed the details rather well, yeah, than he, restoring he, his, them. His amazing skill, right? This is the the amazing, you know, change maker skill that this one guy has is that he has a good memory. I mean, this is such a, this is like the ending. If you guys have read, uh, we can remember it for you wholesale. Yep. The original yep. story I do. is like the guy's superpowers that he met aliens when he was a kid. <laughs> it's but, 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 like just terrible superpowers. No, but it's not only that, but he's, but I get, but I'm remembering that story. It's just not only he remembered aliens, but he negotiated with them and got them to back off, which kind of reminds me of a little line in men in black. Remember, Men in black, yeah. yeah, men in black. Apparently, Agent uh, Agent K had negotiated with Alien. Oh no, no, that men in black. Um, I'm sorry, it's um, uh, Lilo and Stitch. Lilo and Stitch. Okay. Uh, the the agent saved the Earth from aliens by telling it it was a preserve for mosquitoes. And that's that that. But that's a deep dark secret that no one knows. But it's just like it's, it's like one of those little details in the story. I like the movie better, but it's like one of those details like, okay, you, you saved the earth, but nobody really knows. But, and that's kind of buried under several levels yeah, of reality. The government can't, the government can't, you know, put him in a black prisoner, kill him or anything, because if they do, the as soon as he dies, the aliens are coming back. His just very existence prevents the destruction of the world. Yep. Which is like the it's the weakest it's it's like the kind of superpower you wish you had when you're in high school or junior uh, maybe elementary school where you know you you just like not everybody knows that I'm a secret superhero I'm a government spy like that it's like no you're just a kid uh, and a bit like seriously he's he's got a horrible wife we got to talk about the horrible wife. And he, 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 his superpower is he visits the town and everything's different. And he saves the, he saves the town and possibly the earth, uh, by just having a good memory the of the universe, like, actually, not just the earth. Yeah. It's whole, yeah. It's a battle between these two cosmic forces and he helps yeah. create a victory in this small place in this small time. It's not permanent because the struggle versus Araman and Orzaman, it goes on forever, but it's a, it's a victory. Yeah, but uh, his superpower is that he can remember what the town was like. This is like right at the beginning of the book, right? They're driving into the town and his wife is like, you remember, you remember, you remember. I don't care. Yeah. I want to go to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, yes. you can see, you know, he's traveling to, you know, his old hometown and he sees this is Philip K. Dick I'm talking about. And he sees, you know, hey, that store, I remember that. And then, wait a second, this wasn't there. And you sort of, if you've ever visited your hometown when you were a little kid, and 
thought back about what things were like, you pretty much think you remember things, then everything's different slightly. So that's, you know, sort of the germ of the story, which is, again, it's like the worst superpower yeah. <laughs> to remember what it was like. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to argue with this with you, Jesse, because it's not okay. only that he remembers it, but he, but he can use that memory to restore it, or at least chain, pull back the... Uh, the uh, the illusion that's been placed upon reality by uh, Araman. So it's because not he wasn't like, there during that distortion, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, so he can he can he can undo the distortion because of that memory. I mean, the memory itself is not enough. I mean, it's just that he can he can undo it. But isn't it not just that he can remember, but that he wasn't? He's not distorted like everyone else. Like he right, right. kind of yeah. escaped the distortion. Right, and which is what, why he can be the catalyst for the for the mm-hmm. restoration. Because rem- remember when he when he when he meets his friend and he has his gadget to make things go back only for ten minutes, but Ted can do it permanently. Yeah, it's be- it's not only that Ted remembers; it's that Ted can can. Undo- but notice it's the town drunk who can. <laughs> he's he's yeah. He's well, he's not like the most reliable guy. When you know everyone in the town says no. Uh, that's the thing is at the end of this, I feel like uh, there's no doubt that it all happened, and yet that's very not Philip K. Dick sort of thing. Shouldn't we like feel like, wait a second, isn't he just crazy? And I'm like, no, I don't think he is crazy because the only uh, the the things pointing to that are pretty pretty small. It's just the fact that the the town drunk doesn't look, you know. At first he disagrees with them, and then. He buys him a drink. <laughs> yeah, I'll agree with you. That's about it for for you know doubting the fact that this guy's gone crazy. It 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 feels very pat mm-hmm. as an ending, don't you think? He just drives off into the sunset. He just he just drives off thinking thinking about uh, the woman and thinking he's going to have to break up with his wife because the wife won't because yeah because he and his wife just have a really crappy relationship. It it it. it it's just so dull. It's a typical Philip K. Dick leaving the dull <laughs> wife for a more exciting version. <laughs> right, right, but he's not—he's not leaving for her because he says he'll—he'll he'll be reminded reminded of uh, Orzamud's daughter everywhere. But he's mm-hmm. not actually going to necessarily meet her again. Yeah, she's like everywhere now. She's right, and he can see her everywhere. And he's going to be reminded of her everywhere, but it's not necessarily yeah. to manifest in a particular place. But yeah, now that that little theme there, where he's going to see her everywhere, is. Uh, the ending of one of the best uh, short stories Dick's done. Uh, we did a, a, a discussion podcast uh, read along a while ago, a um, long while ago. And that one's called Upon the Dull Earth, okay. which also has some really great, uh, I don't know, allusions to the some scenes in the Odyssey and, and such. And it's a really, really well-written story. But the ending of that, um, he, you know, he brings his dead wife back. This this is a wife he likes. <laughs> oh wow! How <laughs> different? Yeah, totally. He brings his dead wife back to life, but um, she she manifests in every person he meets, and um, it almost it, it it's not a good thing, right? He he wants her back so bad, and he brings her back from the dead, but she inhabits the bodies of everyone she meets. All right, everyone he meets, and it's spreading like a contagion around the world. Um, and then I think it, uh, you know, he 
pulls into a truck stop diner bathroom or something and looks in the mirror and oh, even his features are changing uh-huh. into hers sort of thing. Oh, God, that reminds me of being John Malkovich. You've seen the movie, Yeah, right? yeah, it's very Malkovichian. Oh, God, yeah. Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. Malkovich, yeah. That's, <laughs> have you seen it, Marissa? Yeah. Yeah, that's just one scene where everybody is Malkovich. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. That's that, that that's definitely Dick going for going for the creep factor again. It's a one man show. It is a one man show. <laughs> uh so yeah, what what's the wife doing in this book? I mean just is it just another, you know, gotta have a <laughs> another dig at his little life? Yeah, she she shows up a, on a phone call, which I thought was interesting. The phone calls can get through the barrier, but not uh not yeah. physical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, was, yeah. Was that a mis- deliberate mistake on his on Dick's part? Not thinking of the consequences of the barrier that blocks physical transit, but not communication. Um, I, I, I think since he had established her at the beginning, he had to have a callback to her, so to speak. Okay. Is she just there to you know to be in opposition to his desire to visit the town? Is that her only function in the, in the plot because it's funny that she does you know she's there they don't have any kids then she's gone and that's yeah that's that's, it. yeah it, i think that's the only reason why she's there so otherwise he doesn't just go straight to the town or doesn't think to go to the town she's she, she's she's basically a plot device i mean she's the harridan wife i like that word harridan wife but even but not even as present as some of dick's Harriet and wife uh, characters. I mean, she's there at the beginning. She's there at a phone call, and he knows he's going to leave her. But yeah, this is right before the divorce, I guess. You know, <laughs> in the stage of writing. Yeah, it's it's one of those yeah, you know, reflecting be. reflecting rea- reality, reflecting things. Like now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull in. Um, he's going to kill me for mentioning this, but he never listens. We may not listen to this podcast. Stephen Bruce. When Stephen right. Bruce was having marital problems, his character had. His main character had problems with his wife in the novels. You, you, you can track their relationship by how Vlad was feeling about Cauty in, in the novels. Yeah, seriously, it, it's just like you follow it up and down. So, like, so we'll, put, take, we'll take from that that Philip K. Dick was finding his wife um, dirty and sweaty. Because <laughs> he keeps on mentioning that. She wants to go to the bar, right? She's drink, She's grabbing old hot beer from the back seat. It's like. Yeah, yeah. She's a drunk. She's always perspiring, and yeah. <laughs> it is the it is the middle of the hot summer, though. Yeah, there's uh, that. But, and but Mary you know, isn't a road trip with a with a, a spouse you're sort of on the rocks with is probably not the greatest idea because yeah. you get trapped in the vehicle. <laughs> but she she's the one who threatens to divorce him. It's not the other way around. This is the the very passive aggressive way he gets women to divorce him. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, all of the the dialogue that he has with her, it's like he's not really present in the conversations. She's complaining and he's just talking about the town and and she has to prompt him uh, from his facial expressions to explain to us, the audience, what's wrong, what's wrong with the town. I mean, we notice his hands are, you know, tight on the steering wheel or whatever. And he start, stops talking after a certain point of entering Millgate. Because um, Mary is already manipulating him. I couldn't really work out. Is she sort of like taking over his uh, like free will a little bit to get him to the town? I don't know. Or does she just- uh, that's what she's, she she's she says she's 
you know, manipulated him into getting there. But I don't think she's taken control of his mind. No, it's no, just a vent. Just a situation. Just, yeah. Yeah. She's like, give, gave him a flat tire. and Okay. And that sort of thing. But here, here's a question. 18 years before, he hasn't been in the town. Um, how did Mary do this, considering she wasn't born 18 years before? She's like 12 or 13 years old, maximum. Physi- right? Physically, but, no, but, but physically, she's in, incarnate only for 13 years in that body. But she, as the daughter of Orzammon, she's as old as Orzammon in many ways. I, I hear you on that. But the thing is, is who is she in the town before that? Because she says, you know, I kicked you out of the town back then. This is uh, Philip K. Dick explaining why mommy and daddy can't live together. <laughs> 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 you have to go live with your mom in Washington. Um, it's because the gods have determined that <laughs> you have to use your memory of the death now. But maybe uh, she was maybe she was everything then as well, like the same as because Mary. But she's, not, she's not everyone. She's just she's just her and her golems, right? Or, yeah, but she's not more than one golem at a time, as far as I can tell, is she? No, no, she's she's the creature. She's not the golems. It's uh, it's the she makes her own golem. No, that's right? from um, yeah, what's his name Peter's golem. She steals it from Peter. She but she doesn't oh, okay. use golems as a general rule. She uses more natural elements, which right. which is going the whole duality of Orzammar is more natural, Aramon is more uh, uh, evil creator. Evil creator. Yeah, so yeah. the horror, horror scenes in the uh, with the with the Aramon coming turning into the I don't know the pus monster or the slug monster. Oh yeah, that was great. Yeah, it was really graphically, you know, it, it was very you know horror. I don't know. It it it, it was sort of reminded me of the Shoggoths, uh, sort of a Lovecraftian Shoggoth sort of thing. In fact, I was thinking that this, this story is actually kind of the shadow over Innsmouth for Philip K. Dick, you know, because it's a guy who comes to a town and uh, the, only the drunk listens to him. <laughs> and then yeah. he discovers conspiracy um, and then he changes the town, right? It, not in the case of the FBI, but <laughs> this right. is sort of a more positive spin on the shadow over Innsmouth. Kind of. <laughs> well, no, that's not, that's not a bad comparison. Have uh, Have you seen the movie uh, um, Dagon? Yeah. No. Yeah. It, it, it's it's basically it's the shadow of Ismael, except set in a Spanish town. Mm-hmm. I, I I like that adaptation a lot. I mean, it's I think it's one of the stronger ones of. Uh, I can't think of the director's name offhand. Uh, Stuart Gordon. It's, yeah, it's one of the strong, stronger adaptations, I think, of. Lovecraft and yeah, it's the whole okay. If someone comes to the town, they have a connection to the, they have a connection to the town. Although in that they don't remember in Dagon, they mm-hmm. don't know it offhand. And the Shroud Drunk is a is the entry into what's really going on. It's I I wonder if yeah, I wonder if Dick was inspired. Well, by he, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt that he's read some Lovecraft. I, he was. He was alive during the period. It would very likely have been possible. And the thing is, you know, one of the things that uh, I think, Marissa, you sent some notes, uh, a page of notes about this. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think um, is interesting is that this is not, uh, he, Dick doesn't think of it as a science fiction novel. Um, I think you'd be hard pressed to argue that it is a science fiction novel. Yeah. Other than, you know, the mention of cosmic this and cosmic that. Um, it, 
and yet it's not even you know sort of a typical fantasy novel if there is such a thing it's it's kind of its own creature it's it's like religious you know mythological uh kind of mythological yeah. fan- mythological fantasy because we do yeah. we we do have the we have the, we have the two uh we have two persian gods we have a change in the town so that it's different which but it's only it's only the balance of the town. But yeah, other than that, yeah, it's more Neil Gaiman-y than uh, you know. Not yeah, the, you know, yeah. It, or someone was not, likening it to like Stephen King novels, and I was feeling that as well. Like really, this it's, it's, certainly it's got that creepy, creep, creepy factor uh-huh. of the small town, the fantasy horror kind of feel, yeah. mm-hmm. which uh, kind of reminds us of one of the worlds in um, Eye in the Sky. The Yes. The horror world. Yeah, I got the, that the too. Horror world. Yeah. But so much yeah. more restrained. Like he really doesn't just unleash the horror in this one. It's yeah, and, until the end where we get to see Aramon. Creepy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, when Aramon's he's rolling, you know, all those rats and and the the I don't know. It, he's like got he's sort of you know. There's a I can't remember the name of it, but there was this Japanese game from a, a few years ago. Where you just start rolling things and it's sort of you keep rolling and rolling and <laughs> adding things to yourself. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you're like rolling the whole planets. I've never heard of that, but it sounds amazing. No. I, what the hell is it called? Like, uh, I want to say Tamagotchi, but obviously that's not it. But it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's what, it's like you start off and you're rolling like a snowball through the countryside and you start, you know, picking up, you know, pieces of paper and then you get street signs and, Pretty soon you're rolling trucks and buildings and then mountains. Oh my! Wow! Continents. I I never actually played it, but I remember thinking about it's like what a weird idea for a game. But um, yeah, it's it's kind of that kind of weird fantasy. Now, um, I also sent you guys a link to a story uh, that I think is very interestingly cute. It's very short, called Expendable. Did you guys read that one? Yeah. Uh-huh. So the, it's mentioned, I think, in the Wikipedia entry, uh, or maybe there's just a link to it or something. Um, so <laughs> that one's kind of, I think that's kind of like a joke story. And it was published in FNSF, so it's not public domain either. He Who Waits. I think I read it as He Who Waits. Yeah, He Who Waits or Expendable. And it, it's like there's a guy, <laughs> he's living in a house. I think he's completely unnamed. Um, and he, is he riding the bus or something? And, and, uh, there's a, some bugs living outside of his house. And then he finds out, oh, oh yes, the bugs are, are in a war. Oh, insects are in a war with spiders mm-hmm. and sort of human, nobody in the world knows except for him. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the joke ending, which is, you know, oh, uh, you, you, you can't save the world. You guys are, you're doomed, but. We're, we're going to be. Oh okay. yeah, because the insects are thinking like in in terms of species and generations, not individual. Right. Not saving individuals. Yeah. And they talk about you know I think one of the in, is it the spiders say yes our allies the birds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not sure Dick kind of realized that lots of birds lead spiders, but you know. Well, yeah, but it was sort of an un- uneasy alliance, I yeah. think. Is but yeah, that, yeah, this story reminded me of an old Outer Limits episode called Z, 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 I can't remember how many Z's are in the Z, where basically this um, this bee 
mutates into a woman in order to try to seduce a man and get her, her basic, him on her side, including his um, genetic uh, contribution to improve the bee species for their war. It's a honey trap. It's a honey, it's a honey trap, literally, <laughs> because the guy's married, and so he, she's trying to uh, get him to break away from the wife, and yeah. Another joke story. And, yeah, but I mean, I, 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 want, I wonder in the altered history if Dick had started writing for Outer Limits and Twilight Zone, what those shows would have been like, because some, some of those stories kind of remind you of Dick, and Dick would have pushed things even further. To, Maybe. Yeah, he he would have made a good horror writer. I mean, there's so many of his mm. little scenes where they're just they're horrific endings. It's um, you know, upon the door, I mentioned uh-huh. earlier, uh-huh. that's a pretty scary way to, and you know, you get your dead wife. That that is like with those twist twist endings where yeah, you get your dead wife back, but uh, she's everybody, including you. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> That would have been a very different Philip K. Dick who developed along those lines rather than going into uh, reality distortion and everything else that we love yeah. Dick for. That was the other word that, uh, you know, the reality distortion. Um, this is the the phrase that I keep picking up from from people talk, when they talk about uh, Bill, not Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, right? He has the reality distortion field. Mm-hmm. That's his superpower, right? <laughs> Um, and he he had this thing. Let's make a dent in the universe. That that is this that is what's going on in his books, right? It's, if you have a big enough sort of um, personality, big enough charisma, big enough um, will, you can change the reality of the world around you. And I, I think that putting that little kid scene right at the beginning actually makes the book a little bit more interesting um and i think that's probably why he he put it there because i kept going back to that uh-huh. after i finished the book and i was i was like why is this such an interesting scene because first of all it doesn't make any sense at the beginning you don't know why the kids things are coming alive uh-huh. and i was thinking that, that actually we all have that superpower when we're little kids you know one of the little boys who doesn't he's not one of the gods right he turns a piece of, I don't know, clay or mud into a, an airplane, goes, right? Starts flying it around, right? But uh, when Mary makes a sheep, which is also an interesting symbol, yep. um, she, she, hers is just so much better than everybody else's. Um, and when Peter makes whatever he's making, I can't remember what he makes, um, his is also, you know, it comes alive and, and that's actually, you know, when you're a little kid, you can pick up, uh, you know, G.I. Joe's or Star Wars action figures, and you can have those scenes from whatever story you have in your head come alive. Mm-hmm. And other kids can see that scene, too. They can participate, right? But as we get older, somehow that superpower goes away. Uh, um, well, unless you uh, inculcate it into things like, say, role-playing games. That's true. That's a consensual hallucination. Yeah, right? or like yes. storytelling in general. Right. Sure. Well, I'm thinking role-playing games more than storytelling because role-playing games, you're all participating in it together rather than just listening to somebody and imagining it. And mm-hmm. everybody's listening to storytelling is going to imagine it slightly differently. In a role-playing game, you're all contributing to that shared hallucination and that shared That's consensual right. reality. 
That's right. And the thing is, is this is also a theme that comes up in Dick's stories, uh, you know, the days of Perky Pat. You guys read yep. that one? No. Right. OK, that's that's basically there's a there's a <laughs> uh, it's not a game, but people live on Mars and they take drugs and and the children are all adults and the adults are all children. <laughs> OK, <laughs> um, the children are like trying to make you know, the world a better place, and the adults are taking uh, a drug called Choosy and playing with their dolls, <laughs> uh, which are like little uh, Barbie dolls, basically. Um, and you can add, uh, you know, buy new clothes for your doll. You can get Barbie a new new Ferrari and, you know, can. Wow. Uh, What's this one called? The Days of Perky Pat. The Days of Perky Pat. Um, now, when the adults are doing this, it's like, you know, it's kind of like this. The, the modern version of this is when people buy, you know, real, I don't know, they use in-game gold, which they buy using real money, mm-hmm. our world money, right. um, to dress up their Sims, you know, to give them new houses, uh, to give them fancy clothes or, you I- know, it's like. That's it's it's the sort of consumerism without any con- actual consumption. Mm-hmm. It's sort of simulated consumerism. Yeah, you're just buying yeah. into the into this false right. reality. Yeah. So one of my students, um, he he was shamefully putting away something when he came in the other day, and I was like, "What's that?" And he's, "Oh, it turned out to be what I thought it was, which was a fifty dollar gift card for uh, League of Legends. Ah, not a not a gift card, a game card, yeah. right?" Mm-hmm. Where you can buy "quote unquote" skins that don't improve your gameplay, right? They don't give you an unfair advantage exactly, but uh, that make you your character prettier to look at. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why would you do that? Mm-hmm. Now, well, it turns out he spent like two hundred fifty dollars on this in the last couple of years. There's a free game. Yeah. It, well, it's this is a weird model of reality, and yet this is. Very much, you know, a billion dollar business. Right? And Philip K. Dick kind of predicted that with stories like The Day of Perky Pat, where you would spend money, yes. and spend money on virtual unreality that really doesn't change anything. It's not like you're buying better, better stuff. You're just buying stuff that changes the experience, and it's not really any anything tangible. It's mm-hmm. well. The thing though is, is Barbie was around back then, and I, he, Dick had a daughter. I, I would expect that what happened was, you know, he start gave her a Barbie, and he started thinking about, you know, hey, she's walking around, seeing his kid playing with it, and then, you know, as the kid, you know, as you get older, you have more trouble maintaining that play feature with it, so you, you try to regain it, regain that sort of childlike wonder yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah by adding more things that will enhance the simulation right and it's it's kind of a trap maybe is what i don't know mm-hmm. I, i'm not sure he's saying anything he's just sort of pointing to something but i i just thought that was an interesting way to start the book because um when when we start thinking of these children are manipulating the world around them um that's right. People are totally, we are totally manipulated by other people's perceptions in our own lives. So it's a very, I, I think it, it it is a smart book, but I, I, it doesn't feel like a smart book, if you know what I mean. Yeah, not at first. 
But yeah, I think it is deeper. What What do you guys make of the Wanderers as well? Because I think that fits into the that mm-hmm. buying into the false reality system there, where they're kind of in between. If they close their eyes, that they they can keep their own reality, right? They can keep yeah, the original. Yeah, they can remember the original. But if they if they open their eyes, they see all the people walking around holding their iPhones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> then, they, then they have to go buy an iPhone yeah. or something. Yeah, I, I keep I keep uh, going back to uh, stories like the faith of our fathers, and just like how the, how there's two com- multiple competing realities, and which one is the right one? I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, this story is much. I shouldn't say simpler. Right? Much more uh, strictly dualistic. Is that okay? We we have a good mm-hmm. sense that the original reality is the right one, and the one that he wants that he visits in in Bill Gate is the false one. I mean, as Dick would go on later on in his stories and novels, he makes that much more blurry. As in, which one's the right mm-hmm. one? Is there is a this right one? This feels a lot more pat than than the normal the normal deal. Usually, he leaves us five or six outs of figuring out, you know, well, who is right in this situation? Or it just leaves us with questions. This one doesn't seem to leave us with those kinds of questions. No, he, I, I think as as he went on, Dick decided that maybe those pat answers were A, less interesting, and B, less what the real real uh, thing uh, about the world is. I mean, um, what's his, isn't the flow of my tears the policeman said about the whole uh, reality being in an instant? Well, the other thing is, is this this one. I mean, a lot of them are about religion as well, but in this case, he, you know, if you buy into, you know, if you suddenly meet a, a girl who's an avatar for a god, and then she transforms into that god uh, or goddess before you. Um, that isn't like a faith of, you know, I hope that God exists because I'm praying to him all the time and I really want that job. This is a completely different kind of faith, right? This is the revealed reality. Uh, and so it isn't like, like often he has false gods, right? If you, if you've read uh galactic pot healer, uh-huh. right? There's a, he's a God in there. He's not a very effective God. He, you know, needs help. And, but he's a kind of a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's not like a, he's not like this kind of, uh, it's very interesting. You, you, you mentioned wanderers, Marissa. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I picked up in that first scene by reading it again is that the father, which is, I guess, Billy, um, Ormzad or Ormaz. Yeah. Ormaz. Yeah. Or, 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 or Mazda. Is that his name? <laughs> Yeah. Right? Um, if you click through it, it gives it, it's like, uh, Ur Mazda or something. Ur Mazda. Um, yeah. So, it, it is the doctor father, uh, Ur Mazda? He must yes, be, right? He, yeah, yeah, Dr. Mead. But he doesn't know that he is. Yeah. He doesn't. And he calls her, he calls Mary a wanderer mm-hmm. in that first scene. Yeah, he does. And then later on, the wanderers come back, but it's not in the same way, right? Yeah. And I, I have a feeling that the, that because I, I I thought they were ghosts so, when they first so appeared I. in the house, and I thought that's weird. And then every when that's one of the best scenes is when everybody said, "Oh yeah, ghosts, yeah. they come all the time." <laughs> it's like what? I just thought this was a weird town with a guy yeah. with a bad memory. Yeah, aren't there any wanderers where you're from? Is somebody somebody tells Ted and Ted's going no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but then they yeah. seem a lot more conventional when we see them again. 
So I, I yeah, this just seems to be a little disconnect between what the Wanderers are and how they interact with and, people. Yeah, that's right. And they're they're completely flesh and blood as well because there's that moment where um, I think Mary's remembering where one of them opened his eyes in a wall. Like he, they're walking around, they have to keep their eyes shut to remember where to walk. And he mm-hmm. goes wrong and opens his eyes in the wall and then he's trapped and she says there's like a, a smell. Like he's like rotting in the walls for like weeks afterwards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, so they're they're like real flesh and blood, but they they can move through things when their eyes are closed. Like maybe maybe there's there love different levels of wanderers, kind of yeah, kind of, in the interstitial between these two realities that we have juxtaposed. Uh-huh. Well, that's uh, that's what's the drunk's name? It's Christopher. Not, Christopher, right? Okay, so I I thought his name might have some meaning too. You know, he's like. Christ, but the thing is, is that it's interesting because he, he he's sort of completely buying into the the Zoroastrian. Like, if you know that going in, it would probably help you try to understand what the hell's going on. Yeah, we're so used to reading sort of you know biblical stuff. Dick has a story called The Builder in which a guy's building a boat in his garage, and then at the end of the story, it starts to rain. It's like, okay, if you've yeah. read. If you know anything about the Bible, there's a sto- you know there's a story in there that really covers that, and yet it never says you know um, you know his name is Noah or you know that sort of thing. It's just oh it's 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 sort of a Noah story. It's sort of a joke mm-hmm. Noah story. But here, I mean, I'm not I, Zoroastrianism is. I was going to say it's it's not a religion anybody practices anymore but then again the greek myths are all in his stuff too and we have no problem with those well because because so, they're, they're part of our western tradition because they got transmitted yeah. to the romans and so transmitted to all western culture whereas whereas the zoroastrian beliefs only indirectly influence our own because of what christianity borrowed very, from it very indirectly yeah. yeah um in fact i was thinking about you know this is the yeah so marissa was it you who who sent that that essay the ultimate review of yeah abstract uh, concrete or something that thing wow yeah i know <laughs> like dialectical materialism and uh, karl marx and yeah. like what yeah yeah okay. it was a little it's hardcore yeah super hardcore this is why I don't want to read the exegesis. Yeah, because, the cosmic uh, public is a symbol of this process of dialectic <laughs> history. I I thought like yeah. I'm way out of my depth, Marissa. What did you send me? <laughs> but that's um, when I first read the book, I, I didn't understand any of the like mythology behind it. And then after reading oh. that, I was like, oh, okay, like I can kind of see the the philosophies he's playing with a little bit. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's obviously read a book. Yeah, which is pretty <laughs> much how he writes, right? He reads some yeah. kind of philosophy or religion, and then he writes his own version. That's right. Yeah. It's just that this book is not one that everybody else read, like us. Yeah. So I, uh, I wonder, like, if you, if you took this to, I don't, I don't, I don't know. They would uh, do it in Persian. <laughs> would they say, "Oh yes, of course, great book." Uh-huh. Uh huh. Really, obviously, very, very clear to us very early on in the book that this is what's going on. No, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, sure. and she, the, uh, whoever wrote that essay, I can't remember if it's a guy or a girl now. Um, she says something about 
that opening scene as well. She sort of makes Mary out to be uh, like Mother Nature, you know, like she's like the creator mm-hmm. in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Peter as um, it's, it's like the original of like Philip K. Dick's form destroyer kind of like the, mm-hmm. the forces of chaos coming in. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's Barbara Morningchild that wrote this, but uh-huh. so let's see. Um, so yeah, there is a very. Uh, I mean, when she when she shows her, uh, the funny thing is, is she says Mary when she's talking to uh, our hero Ted says, uh, "Oh, I I don't have an original form. I take many forms," and then she goes and shows what I think we're supposed to think is her original form. Or something like that, and she she turns into a giant woman, right? mm-hmm. um, a goddess uh, with black hair, of course, and, with the black hair, uh, upturned breasts. <laughs> and up, up, yeah, up. Um, and then she she goes down into the earth, uh-huh. right? And uh, we get the sense of you know sort of like a renewal, like I guess she, she she's. So, Air, Air, what's the story? Airman's the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, going on? he's the form That's destroyer, the, right? He's the so what, it's like he's death and chaos and yeah, he he's corrupted this town and will want to corrupt the whole universe and. I'm, I'm, that, that's something I wanted to bring up. I was trying to figure out what Araman's real plan is here. Okay, so he's he's changed the town of Millgate and only part of Millgate because he's got his half and he's got. Mary's got her half, which she has under control, and that's it? I mean, yeah, it's supposed to be a metaphor for the entire universe, which is supposed to be halfway in balance between good and evil, which is very Zoroastrian, and it's mankind. Maybe we're supposed to think it, we're, we're in a, such a world, too. I, I don't get a hint of that. But, but isn't it kind of like a truce between the two gods? Like, they're, they're sort of like playing a game by rules for a little while, and then once, yeah. once the town has reverted back to its original, the truce is over, and they go back to their... The Wikipedia entry has a nice description of that. It says, Mary and Peter are in fact engaged in a low-intensity supernatural proxy war against one another. It's like, yeah, the low-intensity thing is is what it is, right? They basically stop to play a little bit of chess, and then they're... (laughs) Or they're just right at that scene at the beginning where they're, you know, the girls in the boys' yard, um, and it's sort of a very formal event because the two gods are meeting, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and the, I think it said Peter was very uh, careful not to let himself be touched by the suit of Irma's, the, the, the father, the doctor. Oh, yeah. It's like, that's a weird little detail going back. And it's like, yeah, because so the, the forces of cor- sort of deception and corruption versus the forces of, you know, sunlight mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, purity. So uh, when Aramadi, Ar- uh, if that's Aramadi, the right way to pronounce think, yeah. it, Aramadi, right? Oh, she goes down into the earth, and one of the things that I I remember reading about early at the be- beginning of the book is description of the of the towns uh, or the valley is that the soil wasn't very good, and Aramadi, she's like the sort of a goddess of fertility mm-hmm. of the earth. Yeah. And so I, I mean, it'd be kind of I kind of like was expecting that it would be, you know, now the soil's going to be better and the town's going to prosper. I think so. I think that's what we're supposed to uh, read into that. But Ted's driving yeah. away, but but uh, Aramon's been defeated here. The town is back to its normal self, except maybe about that flag. 
And mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know. And, about and that. now she can restore the land mm. to what it was, and the town can prosper again. Because because remember, at the end, I I, I wish I had a copy of this book so I can look at it. Because remember, when when things revert. The town suddenly is prosperous, and they talk about, oh, yeah, everyone stops yeah. through this town, whereas in, in its cloaked reality, no one ever did. It's kind of like, okay, the town's back yeah, on the map. Are, the economy's getting better. People are, people are traveling yeah, through. Yeah, of course people stop through here. Why wouldn't they sort of thing, right? Well, one of, the, one of the things about the description of how they're getting there is that it was like there was no road out of town. There was only a road into town. Right. Right. Um, so obviously they've got some through through highway now. Or there, w- but, or there always was, but that got erased when uh, reality right. got uh, shifted. Uh, I think that scene uh, with the overturned truck is a pretty great one. Um, it's a very, very classic Philip K. Dick sort of scene where you've got. A, remember, we had that same one in the last book we did where he's trying to get out of town and his truck breaks down and. Then he has to go get somebody a malt. <laughs> no matter what happens, he can't get out of town. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that that truck that's overturned, we sort of know, seeing that truck, that he's never going to get past it. That's the first time the little boy is really creepy as well when he stops time and yep. he's kind of boasting about it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny because he, Mary and Peter both seem to be knowledgeable at sometimes and completely like when, if you read Mary's first interaction interactions with Ted Barton, they are, it's as if she, her very first things, it's as if she doesn't know who he is. Uh-huh. And then very soon after that, she is like, no, you can't go there because um, Peter's dangerous. You, you have to go somewhere else. Go to my father's house. It's, it's, it's almost as if there is a, Real Mary and the goddess is kind of overlaying her, but not always overlaying her. And same thing for Peter. I, I, I imagine that, because otherwise, I can imagine Armand being really bored if he has to be Peter 24 <laughs> 7. Yeah. So I, I, but I even for Ormast as well, with the Dr. Yeah, Mead, yeah, he doesn't really do- know. And he, but yeah, he's, he's completely close because he's, he's kind of like the sleeping god. But I think Mary mm-hmm. and Peter aren't always in control of themselves because, yeah, that would be, I think that it's sort of undercooked, and I, I, I maybe I shouldn't do this joke, but it is kind of undercooked in the sense that you know when you're making your golem, you should cook it a little more thoroughly because really that's I, I think that that's the sort of the more interesting thing that we don't really see is that really they are kind of, they Mary and Peter are golems for for the gods, mm-hmm. right? And the fact that they're making little golems are using golems and making them um, and making things in the way that, you know, out of clay, as we expect our, you know, traditional Judeo-Christian gods to yep. do, making men out of clay mm-hmm. and women. Out of, that's also, uh, that's also, that's <laughs> women, out, women out of men. That's or also a very Greek myth as well, forming black clay. Yes, it's very much. Uh, yeah, I was thinking of Prometheus and then. And then also, uh, it's funny because the, the more you do sort of comparative religion, you say, you know what? They're all really the same story. It's just the, the, it's, it's like, it's the Brothers Grimm version of. That's a, that's a very Campbellian point of view on your part, Jesse. But it is though. Like, I mean, like, for example, I was, uh, you know, doing a lot of, I was doing a lot of modern Prometheus students studying Frankenstein and I'm 
going through the book with a student and it's like, okay, so if you know who Prometheus is, then you know this. And then what's Zeus's punishment for, 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 for Prometheus is torture, but he actually punishes humans as well. And he gives us Pandora's box, right? Tells her not to open the box. And that's really the Garden of Eden, right? Yep. It's sort of the same mythology. And we have that here as well. I mean, it's not, it's not straight up as, as close, but it's pretty close. Yeah, but we have, we have the Edenic state from which we fall, but in this novel, Ted restores it. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's a story of, it, ultimately, the Cosmic Obvious is a story of redemption and one small but significant victory in the eternal fight against evil, which always has to be fought. Yeah, but it's not so much like I, I think if you were reading that, that essay Marissa found by the woman we can't remember the Bar- name Bar- of. Bar-, Bar Morning Child, listeners. Barb Morningchild. Okay, so in that one, she she's saying it's not so much good against evil, right, as much as like chaos and order, or um, uh, death and and life. Yeah, very more cosmic. So the, what's the Hindu god that's both the destroyer and the you know, newer? Yeah, Shiva. Right. So it's not like you know, if you're a Shiva worshiper, you 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 love death metal. Right, <laughs> you, you can like other kinds of music. Too. Uh, she's got lots of swords, but those swords are also for reaping. Uh, I don't know, nice crops that are fertilizing the soil or whatever. So that renewal, it's it's, and also you know we get all the the seasons that way. You know, so that if you, if you look into the mythology of not Christianity uh, past the you know the Old Testament, but uh, sorry. Yeah, new, not New Testament, but Old Testament stuff is pretty much it's the same sort of stories, right? Mm-hmm. And so making those connections here, it, it's it's it is rewarding if you have if you go back and study. It's like okay, now I see what's going on. It makes a little more sense. It's a little more easier in the age of Wikipedia than back in the fifties to figure oh out what, what what Dick is. Yeah, that would have been helpful. <laughs> yeah, I would have been baffled. Even, even but 20 years ago, like, what the heck? A traditional, you know, European liberal education wouldn't have prepped you for this, right? Or maybe only only in the most tangential sort of sort yeah. of way. But but I I I do I I mean it, it does show Dick's interest in religion and mythology and and I mean it's very it's it's forms he would take and develop later. But yeah, it, it, this is like it was like very proto Dick, as I said before, very early Dick and. I think it's worthwhile. I think it's worthwhile for people to people to read, especially for Dick fans to see where he came from. He came from out of this and developed all these themes and ideas in very, very odd and interesting directions that we all read and like. I agree, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not so sure that it's so early. I I, I disagree with that part. <laughs> I I think that you know he pretty much had his style down. He has his style um, down, but I think he has his train of thought about reality and the forces around reality. Here, it's still way too dualistic and too pat, as you said before. It. All right, so here's by let's see by year of composition. Okay, I'm on the Wikipedia entry for Philip K. Dick's biography, bibliography. Mm-hmm. Uh, first composed novels, Gather Yourself Together, which is a, a mainstream one, a mainstream book, published 94. Uh, Voices from the Street, another mainstream novel, published 2007. 
Then Vulcan's Hammer, which uh, is 53. Doctor Futurity, uh, 53. Oh, and Cosmic Puppets, 53. Okay, so I guess it is pretty early. But still, that's his fourth novel. It is his fourth novel. It's not his first. Or fifth novel, fifth actually. Novel. Fifth novel. And he, like I said, he had, he had by 52, 53, he had published, uh, by the end of 53, he had published almost three, uh, not 300, about 100 stories. Mm. Okay, that's a fair, that's a fair cop. Okay, okay, so, okay, it's, okay, so I shouldn't say it's too, too early, but it's first age dick? It, it seems early in the sense that, you know, it's from the 50s, but he has a long career of writing ahead of him still. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, do Android's dream of, Electric Sheep, sort of maybe the height of his powers, right? Galactic Pot Healer, I would say, height of his powers. Um, those are the late 60s. So it's, you know, 10 years on. 10, 13 years on. So the Man on High Castle, 61. Some, some, some people come. would say that is the height of his powers, but those are the people that kind of like yeah. only like that and nothing else of Dick. I know, I've noticed that, where people like that novel and nothing well, else of his. Sort of, it's sort of the it's a breakthrough novel, one of Hugo and a Nebula or something, right? Yeah, but it is it is it is so different and yet so not, and that maybe we shouldn't turn this into a Man in the High Castle. Have you read that yet, Marissa? Yeah, I have. Yeah, it's great. Okay, okay, good. Maybe we shouldn't turn that into. It's a it's a great book, but but it's not his best book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I haven't read all his books yeah, yet, but yeah, I I I, 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 I content Galactic Pod Healer best book ever. I haven't read that one yet. You got to read that. Book. Yeah, so, can't wait. So funny. It's got all the all the things you love, and it's just it, it's also just so funny. <laughs> well, we, that might be why I didn't win because Man High Castle is very serious, and we know that humor doesn't generally get Hugo oh. wins or nominations or Yambos or anything like that. It's a serious book about an alternate world, and yet you still get the whole stuff with. Uh, us ima- them imagining what our world is like, and it's not our world after all. It's a, it's a British American Cold War, which is really weird, as I recall, <laughs> because the, the competing for influence in Africa, British versus American. I thought, well, that's that's not even our world. It's not their world either. It's like how many worlds mm. are there out there? Yeah. Have you guys read um, uh, Ron Al Hubbard's? Story Fair as well. Did you catch the reference? No, to that? I've not read that one. Ah, because Philip K. Dick references that one um, in relation to this one. He says it's Which this starts that? out like Hubbard's Fair and hmm. then degenerates into fantasy. But I didn't have a chance to um, read it for this. But oh, I'm gonna look that one. Yeah, up. it could be interesting to read as well. Um, I, I, I was listening to a podcast the other day and it said that. In in the when the IRS went up against the Church of Scientology, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the the, the uh, uh, IRS lost. Um, they had owned like uh, millions and millions and I don't know a billion dollars or something in back taxes uh, because they were not a charitable organization under the you know the rules and so the, what the uh, they couldn't afford to pay that they didn't have that much money so they. They uh, they started up suing every part, every person in the IRS and the IRS itself. That's and amazing. Just, so they they went up against them in an you know like instead of going on the defense, they went on the offense, <laughs> and uh, they ended up settling. Right, uh, you know we'll drop our lawsuit if you stop going after wow. us. 
our, our lawsuits, I guess. And then um, uh, one of the things that happened as a result mm-hmm. is that in the settlement um, that the uh, all the works of of L. Ron Hubbard um, are now considered holy text. Is that right? <laughs> so that it's not subject to a profit, uh, profitable, uh, you know, profit gains or whatever it is. Holy They're not taxable. So that's kind of weird. <laughs> it's just hilariously. Here's the thing, you know, if you have a, if you don't have, if you don't have a billion dollars, but you have 50 million, you can, you can get out of paying the billion by, uh, by yeah. seeing <laughs> Maybe maybe they don't want that well known. Yeah. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.